0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us again for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Uh, Charles Roberts is with me again today. And we're going to get behind a question that may seem obvious to some. Hopefully, you'll realize that it's not as obvious as it might seem. And the question is, is shame a good or bad thing? So, Charles, let's jump right in here. Is it good to be ashamed? Is it good to shame other people? Let's talk about shame.
0: Well, maybe, at least from my standpoint, let's put on the table a difference between shame and embarrassment. Some people might not realize there is a significant difference. You know, e- embarrassment is something that happens to us. Maybe it's out of our control. You know, uh, say I'm doing something that I'm not particularly crazy about somebody seeing me do, whether it's brush my teeth, you know, in the bathroom or something like that. And somebody comes up and sees me, I'm embarrassed. Shame, however, is something that we do ourselves that involves some sort of uh, moral compromise. Now, right away, we're using terms that would be foreign, perhaps, to a lot of the current American population, but it's something that uh, Dr. Rustuni spoke of in particular in one of his position papers, or excuse me, in the Chalcedon Report number 379 on the topic of abominations. And um, I recommend that to all of our listeners. It's in the Faith in Action, volume number three set. In typical fashion, he mentions how when he first started reading the Bible, he came across this word. And I assume he means as a, as a much younger man, he came across this word abomination. He was really taken by the meaning of it and the sound of it. And so he traced all through the Bible a number of occurrences of that word. And he said that you know, it was very closely linked as he came to realize with the issue of shame, because abominations are certain things that God classifies as things that are unacceptable to him, things not to be done. And Dr. Rastuni makes the point that it's only people who don't have a sense of shame that would just gladly engage in behaviors or types of activities that God says are abominable. So in the sense, therefore, that shame can make us aware that we are violating God's law, it certainly is a good thing, because we don't want to be on the wrong side of God's law.
1: Okay, so I think it's fair to say a lot of people will use these terms, shame, embarrassment, guilty, interchangeably. And that's why it's always appropriate and scriptural to go back to God's definitions today we hear that people are fat shamed or they're shamed for their lack of economic, they, they don't have high economic standing within the the culture. And this then will extend to how people treat other people, some of which things that they, you know, go after them for would not be unscriptural, but there are some things that people go after people for that are scriptural. So, I think, first of all, we need to look at shame as a noun and shame as a verb. So I can feel shame because I, we would say embarrassed, but it's more than embarrassed. There's this sense of a painful sensation that Webster says is excited by a consciousness of guilt, of having done something which injures reputation or of that which nature or modesty prompts us to conceal. And so there are many things that the Bible will say should be private and there are things that should be public. And so if something private becomes public, it could be shameful. And you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden prior to their sin, they experienced no shame after their sin. They became aware of that they were naked, and now suddenly that had a bad connotation to them, and they were ashamed.
0: Yeah. Um, embarrassment, th- to keep with this, you know, making the distinction, is something that we experience when maybe we believe that some action that we've done is not socially fitting. I mean, maybe that's sort of what fat shaming, same sort of thing.
1: Well, if I might interrupt you, I remember distinctly as a child going out with my mom and my sisters and a friend, and most people won't know what this is, but it was a big deal to eat at the Automat. At the Automat, you would go ahead and put uh, a quarter, 50 cents in, open a door and get a sandwich. And that was a big deal. And here I am sitting at the table with my roast beef sandwich that I'm looking forward to eating and accidentally pick up the sugar instead of the salt and (laughs) pour all this sugar on my sandwich, at which point everybody at the table started to laugh. And I probably would have laughed if it hadn't been me, but I was embarrassed. Now, did I do anything that was truly sinful? No. But boy, oh boy, did it ruin my day.
0: Yeah. So that's an example of of an action that, you know, I'm using the term socially proper. um, Maybe that's too broad a term, but you you didn't do something morally wrong. Right. It it involves something like, we could say, a loss of dignity, depending on the situation. And so we've said there's 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 a thread that runs through embarrassment and shame but there are as i tried to say a, a moment ago two very distinct differences shame can come about from an individual action that maybe is only known to myself while that's not the case with embarrassment you know right. it's hard to be embarrassed when you're the only person in the room right <laughs>
1: exactly but now we're used to terms, and I certainly heard this term growing up, shame on you for doing that, shame on you. So right. what does shame on you mean?
0: Well, I think uh, if, if you will allow me to do so, uh, I'm going to refer to something that Dr. Rastuni wrote about that very thing. I mean, he, he mentioned that when he was growing up, it was uh, not uncommon to hear someone who deserved it to be referred to as shameless. And that meant somebody who flaunted their sin as though it were some sort of a virtue. And um, I mean, he goes on to make the point. I mean, he wrote that in 1997, but he goes on to make the point that that characterizes almost all of American culture. I can't imagine what he would think today. Well, I think I, I know what he would think, but so have you no shame means have you no sense of abomination of something that is simply unacceptable. Now, there may be an impulse for us to immediately tie this to an atheistic type of humanistic culture. But we got to keep in mind that theocracy, theonomy are unavoidable. So we are simply now given different definitions of what is acceptable as behavior and therefore what constitutes being uh, shameful. And of course, not surprisingly, in our current iteration, shameful activity is anything that violates the standards of an authoritarian government.
1: Right. So, you know, there's always a lot of talk about cultural appropriation that if you're not of a particular ethnic group, but you either act like you are or dress like you are. Well, it dawned on me as I was thinking about this topic that the ultimate appropriation happened in Genesis 3-5, where Adam and Eve decided for themselves that they would be the determiners of right and wrong. And so man has appropriated that which belongs to God alone. And so I decided to do a little bit of a search. You did one, or Dr. Rush Junior did one on abomination, but I did it on shame. And how many times shame ends up in the scripture, in the Old and New Testaments. And it's not something that has a neutral attitude to it. There is no, we already speak about this all the time, there is no neutrality, but when it comes to that which one should be ashamed of, bear shame, or want to see their shame removed, it's always within the context of God's ethics and morality.
0: And one of the notable places that I'm familiar with in scripture where this is referred to And I think the King James and the New King James are the ones who consistently translate it this way. In Daniel chapter 9, in verses 7 and 8, but verse 8 in particular, we read this, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. So there's a direct connection between this sense of, well, to use the word shame or failure or moral culpability because of sinning against God. and then. In the New Testament, Paul writing to the church at Corinth in Second Corinthians 4, he refers to this as, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. So there, there's an interesting connection there. We talked about, you know, this is can you be embarrassed when you're by yourself? Uh, but you, if you have a conscience that's informed by God's law, you certainly can and should feel shame if you're doing something that is contrary to that law. And uh, you may try to hide it, you know, but the shame is still there. And that's been part of the, uh, um, the fundamental dis-ease, intentionally dividing that word into two distinct syllables, of our human condition. You know, we suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. We have this inner shame that there's something not quite right in our constitutions, uh, in our relationship to our creator, whether we s- explain that in a biblical way or, or in a pre-biblical way. It's there nonetheless, and that accounts for much of the mental and social illness that exists in any um, non-Christian culture.
1: Exactly. And if you think about Romans chapter 1, that there are those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, when that doesn't go challenged, when all the things that Romans 1 talks about become societal norms and the quote-unquote Christian thing to do, is to not be nasty, to not be judgmental, then in God's eyes, we are acting shamefully. And it's so funny because shameful and shameless, neither one of them have particularly good connotations in, in the sense that either you should have shame, but now you're so far gone that you don't even feel ashamed for this anymore, or that you're full of shame and you should be full of shame because what you're doing is shameful. And so I'm thinking of Psalm 31:17. O oh Lord, let me not be put to shame for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame, let them go silently to Sheol. So in other words, we are seeing that we identify with God's definitions of shame rather than humanistic Societal definitions, and I think this enters into so many different areas that that we become conscious that if we say certain things instead of wondering if they're scriptural, we get concerned are they politically correct?
0: yeah, and keeping with that same thought, Paul, in his letter to the church at Thessalonica in second Thessalonians chapter three, he's referring to people who do not follow his directives and his guidance which, of course, is the guidance and teaching of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3, verse 14, he tells the Christians there, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be not embarrassed, but ashamed. So there's another example of where, I mean, and, and within the larger context of that chapter and that book, that's not meant to make him feel ashamed just to make him feel bad because he's done something wrong. It's a part of the recovery process. You know, the whole premise of being able to operate in a civilized way in a moral society is that people do have this sense of something being wrong. If they don't have that sense, then you have nothing but moral anarchy, which, of course, is sort of where we are now, except for the, the state-approved you know, versions of what is moral or immoral. But if you can't appeal to someone's sense of shame that they've done something wrong, then the whole process of discipline, of restoration, all of that completely breaks down.
1: Because the goal of teaching, the goal of rebuking, has to do with having somebody come to terms with their sin. So if you never confront somebody about their sin, where the Word of God clearly says that, If especially if this is another believer or someone who has professed belief, then in essence, by not confronting them with their sin, you are being ashamed of the gospel. You're saying, if I say this to the person, if I quote the scripture, then somehow or other, I'm wrong. And so I've got to find another way. I think that's a great example of being ashamed of the gospel.
0: One of the things that I remember most of my seminary days when I lived in Philadelphia, one of the professors I had for church history, he told a story. He he had been a pastor and raised in a Christian home, a Reformed home. And he told a story about a church where he was involved many, many years ago, had to bring discipline against a member who happened to be a woman. I don't remember what the deal was, but at any rate, in telling us this story in this seminary class, it really wasn't related to this particular subject of church discipline or whatever. I don't remember how it came up, but I've never forgotten it. He said, you know, we, we excluded this person from uh, the Lord's table and from the membership of the church because of her continued refusal to uh, receive the admonishment of the elders. But then he said, you know, you, you don't like to do that, but he said the Lord used it to make her feel ashamed so that she actually came back to the church, went before the, the session, the Board of Elders, and said, I thank you that you cared enough you know, to exhort me in this way, because now I fully understand and appreciate that I was wrong.
1: To quote a um, a book title of a book we've both read, that shame is a grace, that there is a grace attached to shame that says, if you didn't feel it, you wouldn't know something was wrong. Just the same way, if you touch a hot object, there's this response that says, ouch, and you pull your hand back. However, without that, and there are people who don't have those sensations, they can really hurt themselves. So shame, biblically identified, as long as it's in keeping with God's ethics and morality according to his law word, is a grace. It's a grace like there are other things that we experience. The sacraments are a grace. Being able to worship together and be in fellowship with other people, that's a grace. We sometimes want to get away from those things that are hard to do, and it is hard to do. For example, if you're a parent and now your adult children are living and acting in a way that's contrary to what you taught them, contrary to the word of God, there's always this lot of pressure that says, well, okay, we should still have fellowship meals. We should still do this or that. But should you? Should you be in communion with someone just because they share your DNA who's out of communion with God?
0: Uh, not according to God's law. Uh, I mean, the, the goal would be for that to change. But, of course, that's completely in the Lord's hands and in the uh, moral will of the person who is you know, denying that there's any need for shame you know part of the problem and again dr rustuni i think speaks very powerfully to this in the essay he wrote on the subject of abominations that in our time you know the ideas of guilt and shame are have been or in the process of being replaced by other virtues that are often approved by the state or some other non biblical entity and he mentioned self esteem you know that's the that's the high prized virtue of our time And so he pointed out that 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 goes hand-in-hand with the idea of, look, I'm not really responsible for anything that I do. And at the bottom of that, it's so amazing how all of this goes back to the basic theology of biblical law. At the bottom of that idea is that human nature is basically good, that we have a natural goodness within ourselves. And so uh, from that, we can just say that when a person does wrong, well, guess what? I'm naturally good, so it must have been something outside of me that created this problem. I'm certainly not to blame. So you can see how the, the biblical concept of shame on which, well, I'm going to go a step beyond that in a moment and say it's, not, it's, it, it's the thing that's so closely linked to shame, which is sin. That was the foundation of the greatest civilization the world has ever known, Christian civilization. But without that, you wind up with something like the paganism of ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And It's interesting, uh, the the book title you referred to, I first was aware of that uh, in an essay from a website that was referring to a book that had been written some years earlier on this very topic called From Shame to Sin. And I'm going to say more about that in just a moment, but I think just to hammer this point that if your starting point is the basic goodness of man as opposed to the uh, morally compromised will and nature of man apart from the uh, grace of God that changes that, then if if that's left unchecked, you have a society that looks very much like the one that we have now.
1: Right. And so if if we're not going to identify sin as sin and be more concerned with being on the wrong side of God than on the wrong side of whatever group we perceive we're part of, then we're manifesting a unbelief even though we might say we believe the Bible, we read the Bible, but there's so many things that you have to pass over quickly in order to be able to say, well, it doesn't pertain here, you know? And so if you think about this, how does humanistic man account for sin, wickedness, or let's not use the word sin, because that's a biblical term, wickedness and injustice. If it doesn't come from man, which the Bible says it comes because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If it doesn't come from man, then where does it come from? See, they can't explain it without going into some weird sort of philosophy that most people, if they read, wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of, and they'll just go, well, I'm not smart enough to understand Nietzsche or Sartre or Kant or Rousseau or Descartes. They have to come up with an explanation, which the Bible clearly gives, but it's not a satisfactory one, and that's why man spins out of control.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that about coming up with some sort of philosophy, because uh, one of the things that I was really struck by in, in researching and thinking about this topic is something that I learned way back in my undergraduate days in studying existential philosophy, and in particular, a man I've mentioned before in our discussions, uh, the French philosopher Jean Paul Sartre. He is notable because, unlike many other atheist types, he fully understood the problem that god creates for a a, a, hu- a human being who wants to be free of all constraints and so the only solution to that problem is to in some measure theologically or philosophically get rid of god now of course we know you can't really do that and that's man's you know I'll put another part of man's inherent problem but he he paints a striking picture in uh, one one of his writings where He refers to looking through a keyhole. Hopefully, there are people who know what a keyhole is. You know, it used to be in houses, you had these holes beneath the doorknob where you'd insert a key to lock it or unlock it. And they were usually big enough to where you could look down and look through it, and you could see a little bit into the room on the other side of the door. And he refers to the fact that he, and and using this as an illustration, you know, I'm looking through the keyhole, and I can see this person over there. I've made them an object in my field of vision you know, so I'm, I'm in some sense possessing them. But then all of a sudden, I become aware that somebody is watching me watch them. And that transforms the entire experience, because now I have been made an object of somebody else's vision, and they see me, what I'm doing. And I'm both embarrassed, and I'm ashamed. So that's a it's a striking way. It's and it's not your typical philosophical type writing. And that's one thing that made his writing so noteworthy, I think. But You can see the correlation. Where does this all fit in what we're talking about? I can't get away from the fact that God sees me. You know, I I may be wanting to look and scan the world for people that I think are evil or bad, and I can assign shame or guilt to them for my own personal reasons. But I am at war within myself because I can't get away from the fact that I'm accountable to the one who created me, and I can't go anywhere to get away from him.
1: Exactly. So I think we need to be careful um, how we use terms. Um, I know there's one culture where, and I had to learn this because there were people who lived in the U.S. from this culture. And for everything from, I had a bad day, they would say, Oh, shame. Or I would say, I, I can't find my dog. Shame. You know, something like that. So it was always like, like, wait, do you mean I should be ashamed? And their response was, no, 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 we're lamenting with you. We're saying, oh, that's terrible. That is a shame. Mm. And after a while, I, I sort of got what they were talking about, but it was so convoluted to me that it was hard to identify, are they for what I'm saying or against what I'm saying? Because I was grounded in this idea of shame being a bad thing. And that it's something that even if no one else knows about it, as a matter of fact, that's a great way to identify it. Because when people have shame over something, they usually don't share it. So when the child steals the cookie from the cookie jar, he doesn't go announce, hey, look what I just did. He hides it because there's this identification that he shouldn't have done it. Even though he still does it, he knows that revealing it will produce something he doesn't want.
0: Back in 2013, um, a university professor from University of Oklahoma published a book that examined, as I referred to this a few moments ago, called From Shame to Sin. And he makes a very compelling argument. Now, this man's not a Christian, but he recognizes in this book the tremendous impact that Christian biblical morality had on the pagan world of the days of Paul and the Apostles which proliferated those teachings throughout the Greek-speaking world and the Roman Empire. See, those people and these pagan cultures, they had a sense of shame, but the, the situation was the things that they w- thought were shameful in their culture were very, very different in some measure between from that between that and what the, the Holy Scripture teaches. I'll give you an example that he cites in this particular book. So a man, of some means, not necessarily a wealthy man, but say a man in, in Roman society who was not a slave, you know, uh, he might be considered someone being shameful if he continues to act in a way that is not considered manly. And if he, uh, say, cheats on his wife, now you might think, well, that seems like a remarkably moral thing to be shameful, and, and the same for a wife if she committed adultery, but what you have to understand is in that culture, it was considered quite normal and expected that a man would pursue sexual affiliations with his slaves, uh, whether they be boys or girls, with prostitutes. Prostitution was just massive across the Roman Empire, as was what we today would think of as child trafficking. It was an accepted part of their culture. So uh, a man in that culture had all kinds of outlets to pursue uh, his sexual um, Preferences or whatever, however we may phrase it, uh, but as long as he did that, it was not considered shameful. But if he did something, you know, beyond that, then so you can see how Christian moral teaching coming into this situation, where Paul in particular is exhorting these people, this is not just simply shameful what you're doing; it is sinful, and that was not some, something that was very familiar to them. And the man who wrote this book talked about the fact that that was like an astounding change that completely eventually over time remade all of Western society that had been largely locked into a Roman pagan understanding of these things. And the review I read of this book on a reformed blog site pointed out the fact that our culture is abandoning this very thing at a rapid pace, and it's leading us right back to where they were in the days of Rome.
1: Exactly. And if you think of, let's just take it from a woman's point of view in scripture, In the book of Genesis, and then subsequent to that, even into the book of um, Judges and Samuel, if a woman, that there is no fruit of her womb, that she doesn't get pregnant, these women were depressed, and they also bore a sense of shame in the sense that they weren't doing what they were designed to do. And in many cases, we see God had them wait. And then after a period of time, they're blessed with children and they rejoice on that. In other words, they they express that the shame has been lifted from them. Well, think about the current debate that is even happening in our country today about the possibility of Roe v. Wade being overturned and merely sent back to the states, not codified that murder is wrong, just merely sent back to the states. You now have people demonstrating and giving sound bites that, from a biblical point of view, are demonstrating shame in a way they never would have done it 30 years ago when they were trying to push their agenda. Now you hear people say things like, abortion saves lives. Now you hear people say, abortion is a decision between a doctor, a mother, and her child, or thank God for abortion. You see, The shame is gone with these people, and it doesn't bear well for a society where they're not even hiding it anymore. And just depositioned with that, there is a wave of infertility in Western culture, along with people limiting the size of their families. So what used to be something that there would be a righteous pride over, you know a quiver full of children, now is reversed. And people are fighting, even in our Senate, it was only a 49 to 51 vote that prevented the quote unquote codifying of preborn murder.
0: And I would invite our listeners to uh, join with us in asking ourselves, how did we get to this point? Uh, most of us of a certain age can remember when these things would have been considered just unbelievably impossible. And yet here we are. I mean, there there are a number of targets that we can point to that might be the source of this, but it's probably a collection of various and sundry things. As uh, I don't know if it was Dr. Rastuni or Gary North used the phrase, you know, we've been tithing our children to the state by putting them in government schools. And even though some of us may remember a time when you had the Lord's Prayer said over the PA system in the government schools in the beginning of every uh, class day, Nevertheless, the seeds were there for all of that to be completely thrown aside. And the, the having a Lord's prayer or even a scripture reading in a government school doesn't change anything if the teaching is all done from the standpoint of the centrality of man and his will and his uh, presumed autonomy. So, how did we get here? Well, that's part of it, uh, but all of the, everything that flows forth from that to where our culture is bathed in a non biblical perspective. And gradually, when you chip away at the foundation to where there's no one left in the culture, in the neighborhood, in the community, who has that uh, that connection to the continued moral capital of the past, then something will replace it inevitably. And we've come to that point now where we're sort of living out in real time, brave new world.
1: But the good news, and I think there is good news attached to this, is the contrast is becoming evident in a way it wasn't 30 years ago. Right. And so when you see demonstrations outside churches and when you see people gathering around um, justices' homes because they might say something that they don't like, meanwhile, if anybody objected to previous rulings with things they don't like, there would be this, you know, you don't respect the rule of law. The point being is, and I think the scripture says it really well, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And along with that, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we can't go back and rewrite history, but we can live faithfully now. And we can set boundaries and draw lines according to the way the word of God does Even if it means children won't talk to us, family members won't invite us to weddings or family reunions, even to the point where we might not be able to continue to work in the environments we've worked in. The point is, whose side are you on? Who is on the Lord's side? It's something that you have to deliberately do. You can't accidentally be on the Lord's side.
0: In uh, one of the great Psalms 119, and following what you just said, uh, about this is not all bad news because as people become more, I believe Dr. Van Til put it, but epistemologically self-conscious, uh, and these things start to implode on themselves because nobody nobody can live like this unless you you know achieve this transhumanist dream where we're not really human anymore. But even then, it's going to come crashing down, and there must be something to replace it. In Psalm one nineteen, verse one sixteen. Uh the, the psalmist says, uphold me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uh, maybe another way of putting that is uh, don't let my hope be crushed. And that's the plea that we make to Yahweh, our God, is that, uh, uh, you know, we have hope in him and hope in his word and the forward movement of his victory. We're living in a time, again, that many of us would have never imagined we would see and maybe hope that we wouldn't see. But we have this assurance, this hope as we move forward in that, that our God will move his victory one step further than the work of Satan. And that, to quote somebody that I've quoted before, we have hope not because of what we see going on in our culture, but because of what we see in God.
1: And this makes the earliest education of children, I would say from, I don't know if you can actually say you can educate children from prior to birth while they're in the womb. I'm not exactly sure I could you know, back that up with anything, but certainly at the point at which you're holding this child, this child has to know that he or she is a creature and that there is a God. And long before you can be convinced that they'll understand you, you should still be saying it to them. The reason being is if you don't, it's not like there'll be this vacuum and at some point then stuff will come in. Everything around them will come in, whether it's, you know, indulgent grandparents or people who they see that don't discipline their children the way you do. It's got to be not so much the hammer coming down on them, but explaining the grace of shame. That when you feel bad and you should feel bad for doing things that are wrong or failing to do the things that you should, that's God giving you a chance to come to repentance. And so, yes, we should demand obedience, but the obedience shouldn't be only because a hammer will come down on you. If you don't, it should be understanding the greater scheme of things that one day you will stand before the Lord. And do you want to be ashamed or do you want to stand there knowing that the blood of Christ has allowed you that position. Because if you look back to Isaiah or you look back to Moses, when they come face to face with God, they're scared to death. They're like, Oh, I should die right now. Right? So it's not like it's going to be different. You know, you're going to get up there and you're going to get a high five and everything's okay. It's that he's still a holy God. And only those who are holy and have been wholly drawn to him by means of the Holy Spirit will be able to stand. The others won't, and they'll say, mountains fall on us. We'd rather die, because it's going to be an awesome thing based on what the scripture recounts.
0: And while I ask our listeners to be reflecting on how we got to this point, let's also be thinking about the importance of what you just said in terms of early on inculcating into our children and in our communities, and I'll even call this a counterculture activity, especially in light of where we are now, that we think deeply about the importance of doing that very thing and that it is uh, is an act of courage and an act of hope in a time such as ours. And also be thinking about what are the areas that God considers our actions to be shameful if we violate his law? And, you know, the book that you referenced earlier and the one that I referenced focused primarily on the area of sexual activity. Of course, that's a big one. You know, I mean, that's uh, something almost from the very beginning uh, of the creation and the early stages of human history. This becomes a focus of God saying, this is right, this is wrong. And if you do the wrong thing, you need to be ashamed because it will eventually lead you down the path of death and destruction. I, I think that this becomes even more stark in the contrast between the way Christians who aspire to live according to God's standards. It just shows us that our understanding of those things can be corrupted if we're not on our guard by assumptions that are given to us in our culture that are contrary to what scripture teaches us, especially in this area of sexuality. I mean, this becomes something very, very important in our time where The whole concept of what it means to be male or female, uh, sexual confusion, all of these things are a direct result of moving outside of the areas where God says, this is right, this is wrong, and having absolutely no sense of what God says is an abomination.
1: Right, and I think it's time for people to take a cold, hard look and not uh, fail to go to those portions in the scripture, whether it's under the Old or New Covenant, where shame is prominent. For example, 1 John, this is for all those New Testament Christians only. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. So it's a daily thing, it's a constant thing. And for those people who sort of pride themselves in their antinomianism that we're not under God's law anymore, well, of course let's beg the question, you're under somebody's law. So whose law are you under if it's not God's law? But when it comes right down to it, rather than saying, is there something I'm doing that violates God's law? I really want to find that out because I don't want to be ashamed at his coming. There are those who say everything I do is great because doesn't the Bible say there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus?
0: Well, it means that we have been by God's supernatural power placed in a covenant relationship with him to where we realize that we have been moved from a place of being under his wrath and curse due to us for our sins to a position of being uh, blessed by his mercy and his grace. This is something that by God's design, we are given the desire to pursue, and God may use various and different means, and including shame, Uh, to bring us to the point where we cry out for that mercy and that need for redemption and a recognition that, again, something is fundamentally wrong with my life, with the way I think, with the way I live, and I want to get to the bottom of that. And that very way of thinking and that very action is itself potentially, at least motivated by God, to drive a person to understanding what he says is something that can lead you to a life of not being ashamed, but a life of hope.
1: Exactly. So it's not that to be in Christ and not under the condemnation means that everything you do is wonderful and you never do anything wrong, but your conscience will be pricked. The Holy Spirit will be making sure your life is uncomfortable when you do things that are contrary to God's word. And part of that, as the book of Hebrews talks about, it means that we're children and not bastards. In other words, Somebody cares for us. Our Father cares for us enough that when we go astray, life won't go rosy for us. Because if you don't care about someone, then you don't care what they do. But those in Christ, God cares.
0: Well, I'd like to wrap up my side of this, if I may, with uh, one last word from Dr. Rush Dooney from the article I referred to earlier. And I think this is a good note for me to sign off on at least. Where he says, we need to take stock of ourselves if what God calls an abomination is a matter of indifference to us. Something is seriously wrong with us, not with God nor the Bible. Are we making of ourselves an abomination in God's sight? We should regard every instance of the use of this word in scripture as a warning from God. And I would just extrapolate from that. He was referring to the word abomination, the word shame. You know, what are, what are we understanding from this? It is meant by God to Uh, correct and get the attention of someone who is in covenant with him and who walks according to the word. And like you just said, it pricks the conscience. It's a gift from the Lord. It's a a, a grace, as you you just said, and as that other book title says.
1: Exactly. So the essay that Charles is referencing comes in the three-volume set, Faith in Action, which is a compilation of Dr. Russ Juni's Calcedon Report essays, over the years that since Calcedon, you know, he started up until the time um, of his death. And I think what's important is rather than saying, well, I'm so far behind this right now, there's no way I could ever catch up. That is not true. Repentance and restitution and changing your mind and changing the direction of your life reaps immediate rewards, It won't get rid of all the consequences that you've been busy, you know, accumulating because of sin in your life. But I would say, and I would encourage people, especially those who are in a position to teach others, whether it's other adult friends, Sunday school, or children in a, you know, homeschooling or just raising your children in general, is that we have to have a very high regard for God's word. And when we come across a passage, and we know that passage is saying something that's very contrary to how we're living, don't just go, well, that doesn't apply anymore, or I sure hope it doesn't apply anymore, or I've never heard a sermon about that, so it must not apply anymore, that there would be a real and truly fearful reaction to offending God. And as a result of that, the psalmist says, that um, or is it in proverbs I can't re- I think it's in proverbs, that the fear of the Lord brings about wisdom, so we must remember that we're not God, and just because we'll blink or wink at sin doesn't mean that God does, so much so that the second person of the Trinity came and died, a very painful death, a very humiliating death, a very shameful death, but did so because restoration between God and his elect is so important. All right. Well, thank you, Charles. Good to have you back after a couple of weeks. Thank you, Andrea. Listeners, you can always contact us, and we appreciate when you do, at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.